Welcome back to Recent Memories, where we reconsider what really mattered from 1979 to 2009, one year and one conversation at a time. For this season, we're traveling back to 2004. It's Bush vs. Kerry, Benefer, Paris Hilton, and American Idol. You've heard those stories before, so we're going to talk about the other ones. The title of this episode is Baseball Malfunction, and here's the story that we wanted to figure out for history. Back in the summer of 2004, in the middle of an otherwise rational baseball season, Manny Ramirez decided to dive to cut off a Johnny Damon throw from just 20 feet away. Later that year, of course, the Red Sox would reverse an 86-year-old World Series curse after making a historic comeback to beat the Yankees. And along the way, a 40-year-old man had the greatest offensive season in the history of baseball. What the shit happened? And moreover, did I somehow cause all of this? Kevin, welcome back to Recent Memories. Hey, Maddie. So let's start. We're in 2004. It's October. The ALCS. You're a Yankees. Yeah. You're a Yankees fan. Uh, any, I am. Any PTSD you want to disclose? I know. I know. In 1983, you accused George Brett and the pine tar incident for breaking up your parents' marriage. Uh, what the hell did this series do to you? Well, my parents were still divorced, so uh, that that didn't nothing changed with them. Uh-huh. But you know, two thousand and four is like such a crowded year, and I had spent so long knowing that the Yankees would beat the Red Sox. Yeah, that the first couple games, I kind of thought I knew what was going to happen, but it wasn't until game six or seven that I thought there was any chance the Red Sox were going to come back. Yeah. This, this, that entire season, as we'll talk about, was just standing on the edge of reason. And I was looking back at sort of the breadcrumbs for the year, but you were the one who began to put the forensics of the case together. So I, you know, I, we, you and I first started looking at that Manny cutoff play, which is we'll talk more about with journalist and radio personality Tony Maserati. But I was also looking at like Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens being like the best players at their position after the age of forty, Ichiro breaking like a ninety-year-old record, and it, just things were not adding up to me. But you were the one who who held up the mirror to me and said, you know, Maddie, you, you got to look at yourself first. So what did you see that I wasn't able to see? So I saw a couple things. I mean, the, the there was almost something that had to break in baseball because they had baseball had almost an evolutionarily obligation to shift. There was just so much going on in 2004 you know, we were just in 1998 and we moved to 2004 and you have you have Columbine, you have Bush Gore, you have 9-11, you have the Iraq War. You Now you have Bush Kerry. And I think almost for baseball to get attention, really strange shit had to happen. Right. The other thing that happened was much closer to home is you had a television commercial <laughs> running at the same time that in some ways, was the safest commercial ever, which was the Red Sox are going to lose. And when you say this into the universe, mm-hmm. the universe almost had to answer back in a karmic sense. Yeah. Because you had a winning annuity, which said, like, <laughs> as long as the Red Sox lose, I'm going to make a lot of money. And the universe said, 
All right. Well, watch what's going to happen next. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see about yeah, that. Yeah, we'll see. Um, so l- l- why don't we why don't we rewind? I'm <laughs> there's a lot to unpack. A lot there. to unpack. I'm sorry if I yeah. yeah. For our listeners, uh, it's probably obvious that I am not a professional broadcaster. I'm also not a professional actor. But Kevin is right. In 2003, through a series of of associations I had in events, I was invited up to Boston to appear in an ESPN ad directed by the famed documentary filmmaker Errol Morris. Now, I was going up as a baseball stats nerd who was going to talk about my favorite baseball player, Eddie Murray. And at the last moment, (laughs) the people from the ad agency said, listen, you know, we like you, but we don't think this Eddie Murray ad really is relevant six years after he retired. Can you talk about the Red Sox? And sheepishly, I was like, you know, my father's a big Red Sox fan. My brother's a Red Sox fan. I just started rattling off like the history of the Red Sox from like, you know, from from Babe Ruth through Dwight Evans. And within minutes, I ha- they threw a Red Sox windbreaker on me, a Red Sox hat. They ushered me up to Beacon Hill and I was just like rattling off a series of of stats, but also implying that you had to throw statistics out, you know, out the door when you were talking about the Red Sox. Um, before I, we talk about what happened after that, Kevin, do you remember seeing the commercial? Oh, my God, of course. It was it was totally surreal. So the more important thing to me, this is like getting away a little bit from baseball, is in 2004, it made complete sense to me that you were in a commercial. There was nothing strange about that <laughs> because, you know, I met you when I was 18 through Judd and Judd was larger than life to me and you were larger than life to Judd. Right. So <laughs> it was inevitable that you'd be on television um, and you had already like sort of been in a commercial with Christian for Kinko's that never aired. So that made sense to me. Like you being on a commercial talking about the Red Sox was an inevitable event. <laughs> what happened afterwards that right afterwards, 86 years of logic would break down and your commercial would become mooted by the Red Sox winning the World Series. That's what everything kind of came together to me in this episode, which yeah. is that everything had to malfunction for your commercial to come off the air. Um, and it does. Um, everything starts breaking down because you being on television talking about baseball statistics is how the universe should work. Um, everything else it was was erroneous. So it's Kevin. Thank you. You're being generous. Uh, I I have no acting skills to speak of, but the I, I like that it made sense to you that my face was on every TV that had basic cable in America. Um, just to slow walk this, I think the last line of that commercial is me saying that if you flip a coin a hundred times, at some point it's going to land heads. And the implication was that the Red Sox had been flipping a coin 86 times and it had it landed in their in their favor, right? So this, this commercial's recorded in to, late 2003. It's airing. I'm getting these huge checks from ESPN every four <laughs> yeah. weeks. I'm getting like $8,000 checks. I, you know, I'm... I'm uh, I took my girlfriend, who's now my wife, on like an elaborate New Year's trip. I've, I've never seen money like this. And, you know, I'm not telling anyone about this, but I'm presuming I've got another 86 years of 
you know. Oh yeah. Of, right. Oh, you could stop working. I mean, this is this is a gravy train yes. with biscuit wheels that's never gonna break down. <laughs> right, right. Ever. Right. Ever. Right. Ever. Right. Ever. <laughs> Things have to really go wrong for you to have to look for other sources of income. Right. So either either I'm a sage or a canary in the coal mine or you, you're you're basically now from the lens of 17 years later looking at the baseball season saying it all starts in late 03 with that commercial. Your commercial is the pinnacle of reason to me. Okay. That's when we reach the the top <laughs> of reason, which is the same way right. that if I were to be on television it would make complete sense to my seven-year-old. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, my dad will be on. That's how I felt <laughs> when you were on television was this was the culmination of everything I knew to be true. And now we're slowly going down the hill into a Dadaist freak show of events right. that really shouldn't happen. Right. To me, baseball was still working, right? Like sports were still working. Um, it made sense that in 2001, the Yankees are going to be in the World Series after 9-11. That yes. makes sense, yes. right? Yes. And everything is kind of proceeding the way it's supposed to. And the culmination of that is you talking about baseball statistics on television. Right. So I'm getting my residual checks. Everything's great. And then February of 2004 is the Super Bowl. And during the halftime show... Sort of the the namesake, the inspiration for the name of this of this episode, we get the wardrobe malfunction. Which for those those few of you who don't remember, Janet Jackson's the halftime performer, and at the end of the last song, which I think is Justin Timberlake's um, "Rock Your Body," Timberlake mm-hmm. pulls like the breastplate top off of Janet Jackson's uh, outfit, revealing something that I never even knew existed, like a, what's called a, a nipple shield. <laughs> I I, I, right. I I think it was a like glittery a glittery one. Yeah, I think it was like a jewel encrusted nipple shield, and yeah. media, the government, the, the the entire world goes berserk over what I would say was the least sexy, like sexually explicit act in the history of the world. Right? Y- yeah, I mean. <clears throat> um... So again, the political backdrop is we're in like an aggressively conservative moment and sports again are supposed to be this refuge from a world that's exploding, right? And all of a sudden Janet Jackson's like bustier explodes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I think there's a lot of confusion and um, almost similar to baseball, it kind of makes sense in that I don't remember who played in the Super Bowl that year. And I feel like everything, everything was getting so crowded in America that if you want people to pay attention, like people's bras have to explode or they're just not going to watch. Right. Um, and uh, it was a more, again, bizarre than sexual moment to me. Yeah, for sure. So let's fast forward. The baseball season starts. And to your point, Everything is set up for normalcy and reason. You know, the Yankees are the Yankees are off to a great start. The Red Sox have a hot start and then begin to fade a bit. And things order seems to be restored. And then, you know, that summer in July, in a you know, relatively nothing game, the you know, the, the Red Sox are eight games back from the Yankees at this point. Pedro's pitching, Pedro's having a pretty soft start to the season 
and he's down by a couple runs. Pedro uh, surrenders a very, very long, what seems like it's going to be a double to center field from a from a no-name uh, Oriole named David Newham. And Kevin, just briefly explain what happens from there. So the ball hits off the very edge of the center field fence, kind of where the green monster ends, and bounces kind of fortuitously for the Red Sox, not that far from Johnny Damon, who then picks up the ball and does what he was trained to do, again, reasonably, probably since he was in Little League, which is throw it to the shortstop, who can then throw it to the catcher, because it's impossible for the center fielder to throw it from that distance right to the catcher. And the most efficient way to do that is to throw it to an infielder who will then relay it to the catcher. And let me just pause. That is called a cutoff. How old were you when you learned about the cutoff? Seven. Yeah. Six, six, seven. Yeah. 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 Um, And it's a totally rational event. Yes. That. You know, that is relying on the limits or or is accommodating the limits of how strong people are is that they can't throw it from the fence to the catcher. However, in most situations. they are uh, able to throw it from the outfield to the infielder. They, correct. They are right. able to do that. Right. Right. And this play happens multiple times every baseball yes. game 162 times you don't even pay multiplied. attention to it you don't it yeah, just yeah, happens yeah so in this moment Manny Ramirez who is on the other side of the field right mm-hmm. should be if he's doing what he's supposed to do watching mm-hmm. um he might run to see if the ball bounces in a weird angle he in a feat of <laughs> insane athleticism hurls himself in front of the cutoff, cuts it off, and then kind of rolling his body, then he throws it to the infielder in an act of insane athleticism, but also inefficiency. Mm -hmm. It's not just that it goes against his team's interests. It's almost an improbable moment of baseball insanity. It wouldn't be like, um, I was trying to explain this to my seven-year-old, how crazy this is. It would be the, the closest thing I could think of is like when Frank Drebin in Naked Gun yes. becomes the, 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 um, the umpire. Enrico Palazzo. And, yeah, yeah, well, he, and he also becomes the umpire and he cuts off the pickoff play. <laughs> When they're in a rundown (laughs) and he grabs the ball from the second baseman, it's just insanity that it should happen. And it winds up facilitating the Orioles having an inside the park home run. I I can't do the, uh, you should go on YouTube because I can't do the play total justice in how bizarre it is. Now here's Damon going back to try to make a desperation catch. He can't do that. The ball bounces away. Now here comes the first throw that Manny cuts off. And then Manny throws the bell horn. That's one of the strangest relays I think you'll ever see. None of them were very good throws of the three either. I mean, Manny became the first cutoff man. Yeah, if this if this highlight was dropped into the naked gun in between the lion, or the tiger running between first and second base, or the yeah, center yeah, fielder's yeah. head yeah. falling off their head, this would not be out of place. Obviously fake. Obviously right. wouldn't happen. Right. It's so silly that nobody would do that. And famously, Manny Ramirez is, is almost inarguably the most lackadaisical left fielder in the history of baseball. 
So for him to for him to conjure this sort of of muster is irrational. For sure, it would be the equivalent of a 2004 version of Grandma Hannah hitting a three run shot off Pedro into left field. It's just like it doesn't compute with who they are. So Kevin, you're like the smartest guy I know, but I think you would acknowledge that that you and I are not equipped to interpret this play. Like we just we, this is beyond reason. So. To, to help us, we're very lucky. We're going to get to spend some time with Tony Maserati, who's a, a Boston Red Sox writer and, and, and uh, radio personality. And he's pr- not only has he literally written the book about the 2004 Red Sox, but he's written a lot about Manny. So if anyone can help us deconstruct the cutoff, it's going to be Tony. I hope so. So happy to welcome Tony Maserati, the legendary Boston sports writer who co-hosts Felger and Maz on 98.5 The Sports Hub in Boston and is the author of several books about the Red Sox, including A Tale of Two Cities about the 2004 ALCS. Welcome, Tony. So happy to have you. Well, you guys throw that word legendary around like no problem, huh? So, Tony, just to catch you up, this this episode is all about baseball in 2004 and basically how it defied reason and logic. If you wouldn't mind casting your mind back to 2004, that's got to rank as one of the greatest Boston sports years of all time, right? Oh, there's no question. Yeah, there's no question at all. And in fact, I would tell you that, uh, you know, in my mind, 03 and 04 are really kind of linked. The the whole Mm -hmm. thing, you know, and I'm speaking purely from the Boston perspective or the Red Sox perspective, but those two years really are joined um, because the consequences of what happened at the end of 03 really triggered what happened in 04. And, uh, but, you know, in terms of, look, we, we've had a, uh, an extraordinary run here over 20 years in terms of what has gone right for Boston sports teams. And I would tell you that people still look at the two most uh, important championships here as being the 04 Red Sox one, which was, I think, the single most important championship of those 12 uh, is it 12? I think it is 12 championships that Boston uh, won in those two decades. And uh, the other one would be the 01 Patriots, which I know you don't really have an interest in at this particular time, which is uh, totally cool. But the Red Sox one was the biggest one. Absolutely. Well, also, yeah, but you're right. And, and February of 04 is when the Patriots win their second Super Bowl. Why don't we talk about what you were thinking leading into that season? Talk to us about going into 04, how you were feeling about the Sox prospects. Well, believe it or not, I actually felt pretty good. And, uh, mm-hmm. and the reason I say that is, you know, after things ended the way they did in 03 and Aaron Boone hits the home run off of uh, Tim Wakefield at Yankee Stadium, the Red Sox had a good offseason. They went out and got Kurt Schilling. They went out and got Keith Folk. Uh, there was a lot of talk of them trading Nomar garcia Para and a big move to get Alex Rodriguez. And then, you know, we all know what happened there. Aaron Boone blows out his knee. Rodriguez agrees to play third. At one point, you know, a lot of this started at the winter meetings. Because I remember thinking at that point, the Red Sox already had Schilling and Folk. And now they were looking to trade Garcia Parra and Manny Ramirez for Mm -hmm. A-Rod and Maglio Ordonez. Like, I don't know if you guys remember all this. but Very well. And uh, and I've been actually researching some of this uh, recently for another project I'm doing. Um, but I remember thinking, oh, that's right. And I had a discussion with, I remember uh, I had a discussion. It was kind of a, you know, I think I can say off the record now, you know, without letting any cats out of the bag, but uh, all this talk was swirling around about 
the Red Sox making this massive deal and getting rid of Nomar and Manny. And I, I remember saying to Theo Webstein, can I ask you a question that you don't have to answer? And he said, go ahead. I said, what are you guys doing? Like, why wouldn't you just, <laughs> you got Schilling, you got Folk, you have a killer lineup. Why wouldn't you just roll out the balls and go play? And, uh, you know, naturally it was more complicated than that. I was a lot younger and didn't, you know, put as much emphasis on some of the contractual stuff as I probably should have. And, uh, you know, Epstein sort of uh, steered around the questions as well, ah, yeah, it's never that simple, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but in any case, I'll, I'll jump ahead to the beginning of 04 now where everything ultimately kind of started tumbling into place and Alex Rodriguez ended up uh, uh, with the Yankees. And at that time, I, this is exactly what I was thinking, okay? At that time, I was pretty friendly with John Harper, the New York Daily News. And I called him up and said, we got to do a book on this season. We have to do mm -hmm. a book on 04 because this thing is setting up to be like the greatest thing ever. And one way or another, I, I was concerned about the Red Sox losing to the Yankees again. I can't lie to you about that. But I yeah. thought that they were going to be really, really good. And uh, so I said to Harper, let's hedge our bets. You do it, uh, you know, a, a daily sort of chronicle of, or, you know, week by week, month by month of what's going on with the Yankees. I'll do one on the Red Sox. We'll alternate chapters because at the end, someone's going to win the World Series. I mean, these two teams are too good for one of them to not win the World Series. And so that was our, That's wild. you know, our, our plan from the beginning was that we were headed for Armageddon. That's crazy. And, that's uh, so prescient that you were able to, and like, it worked out perfectly for you guys. Well, I'll tell you what, in all honesty, we got, <laughs> we got more than we bargained for. Like, yeah. you know, in my, in, in my best case scenario uh, at the beginning of that year, the idea was the Red Sox win it and we're golden. Uh, we got even better than that. So yeah. I, you know, and I'd love to tell you it was prescient or, we got lucky at the end of the day. And because, again, the, the idea was if the Red Sox choked again, which was obviously in play, <laughs> given right. their history, yeah. right. uh, if they choked again, at least we'd have a Yankee book out of it and we could sell it in one market or the other. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, you know, looking back at that team, the core of that team, you got Miller, Millar, Veritek, uh, and then you got Bellhorn and Damon. And those are all, you know, they that year in particular – 04, they're all like above average war players. They're all good for 15 to 20 homers. They're going to get on base. They're going to hit 280 to 300. And then you have two, the, the American League's two best offensive players surrounding them that year. But you're right, the core was very stable. So just to play it back to you, you were feeling, even though the Red Sox had finished second for four or five straight years, you felt like Schilling and Folk's arrival were shoring up the two biggest problems the team had. And therefore, you felt like the Rebel Alliance was going to meet, you know, the dark side. <laughs> you know, that was that it felt destined to you uh, going into that season. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and again, even Jeter, I think at one point said, look, the Red Sox made some really big addi additions. They've improved. And, uh, you know, they got some pitching and uh, Schilling is the big one. That's what Jeter said. Yeah. Well, and, and to your point, they ended up really needing it because Pedro, as great as he was, was off in 2004. He was really, he was like a great pitcher, not, not the best pitcher, you know, at that point. He, he, something was, something was off. Yeah. And, and look, I, you know, I remember talking to people about it at the time and, uh, and I think this is a fair characterization of it. Pedro was entering the final year of his contract. The Red Sox had not given him a new deal. 
And I remember someone, you know, kind of whispering in my ear, uh, this whole thing with Pedro all year has been about his contract. All he wants to do is stay healthy. And so I think he went like 16 and nine or something like yeah. that that year. Yeah. And yeah, he had an ERA. His, his ERA was even near four. Nine, it was a really atypical year. Yeah, it yeah. was like 3.9. And uh, and I remember at the end of the season, someone in the organization saying to me, his whole thing this year has been about just getting through it. And so, because yeah. if you notice, his performance did go up in the playoffs. So <laughs> once they got to the postseason, it, Pedro sort of said, okay, now that we're here, uh, I'm going to dig in and we're going to win. And uh, And so he pitched better in the postseason, but because of the injury he'd had, he, he was just looking to make it through to get his payday. So everything you've said so far makes a lot of sense. But there's some things that happen that don't. And uh, <laughs> the one thing that I wanted to get your take on um, was maybe the play that makes the least sense in sports that I've seen, both in terms of objectively what happened and the people involved. Okay. And that is the left fielder cutting off the center fielder on an inside the park home run against the Orioles. So did I assume you were watching that game in real time? Oh, I think I was at the ballpark that night. Oh, you were at the ballpark. Okay. Yeah. It's possible that I was at home. You know, again, it, you cover baseball for a while. You don't always do 162. Yeah. Uh, but believe me, anyone who covered the Red Sox in that time remembers the play you're talking about. Tony, whether you were there or watching. What were you thinking? <laughs> okay, so l- let me just ask you this, because again, I you know I, I don't have a lot of background on your podcast. Is profanity allowed? Yes. Welcome. It's welcome. Okay, so I'll tell you, like everybody did on that play, and and honestly, until you described it, I couldn't have told you who it was against, who hit the ball. All I remember is uh, where the throw was going. I just the only thing I remember was Damon and Manny. Okay. Yeah. And Damon, Manny couldn't have been more than 30 feet away from him. I mean, it, it was, or maybe, you know, maybe 20 yards. Okay, home to first. I mean, uh, home to the, uh, the mound to the plate, rather. And so Damon makes his throw, and, and Manny, like, comes flying out of nowhere to intercept it like he's playing safety. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what the fuck is he doing? Like, what, what's he doing? And I think everybody uh, sort of said the same thing. Like, what is this jackass doing now? And mm-hmm. so, uh, and I think Frank Kona sort of wondered about it after the game. I don't remember his exact comments, but I think everybody went, holy crap, Manny is completely in la-la land. Like, it's just mystifying. It was mystifying, but it was, cl- it was classic Manny. Yeah, it's insanely athletic, though. For someone who's like an indifferent left fielder, it is heroic in terms of the way he lays himself out and i've never <laughs> seen him do that on an actual play to left field like it was really athletic no that that's the most defensive effort i saw him play in tw- i mean had tony have you ever seen him try that hard in the field at anything no never no <laughs> the, the in fact you know there were there were occasions every now and then where manny would run hard and his helmet would pop off usually it was down the baseline or yeah. and, and you know he was a deceptive athlete because he didn't hustle a lot, but you know, when Manny got moving, Manny ran okay. Early in his career, he threw okay. Like, yeah. you know, and then somewhere along the line, he just got loopier and loopier as every year went along. Um, but it was, you know, I, I, no, I don't remember him ever like putting in that kind of effort to chase a ball in the past ever. So I'm going to ask a question that you might not know the answer to, but I want you to see if we could get you to speculate. Okay. Why? Do you have any guess? <laughs> 
as to why he thought, is there a chance he doesn't understand like what a cutoff does? Like being being a corner outfielder, why would he do that? I th- I mean, honestly, I don't know. I, I, with, I mean, seriously, with him, you you can never really even begin to guess because it's just yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's just no way of knowing what was going through his head at any particular time. You know, he rarely spoke to us, right? He just he was not a media guy, uh, and in a lot of ways, he was kind of like a big goofy kid. And there was an mm-hmm. entertainment value in a, you know, a, a, to Manny and his uh, the relationship with his teammates. Oftentimes was you know, one of sort of like our dopey brother uh, did this and they all laughed about it. Um, but my only guess my, and, and, and is that he thought the throw was offline. And so, he, so he grabbed it. Like, I think, I, 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 I yeah. honestly don't know. I, I sort of wondered at the time, like, does he think that Damon just sort of threw it to nobody and so he caught it? Whatever he was thinking, it had the maybe inadvertent consequence of spurring the team on because the team was eight games back then. And, you know, they finished the season making a real run at the Yankees. In in any way, do you think the team seeing Manny briefly try that hard <laughs> helped motivate them down the stretch? No, honestly, no. no <laughs> okay. I, I just think that this is like this is why the phrase "it's just Manny being Manny" came into yeah. existence. Yeah, because yeah. There, okay. there was no other way to explain it. It was how do you explain that? Well, it's just Manny being Manny. I mean, what else are you going to do? You know, there was a lot at play in that season. Okay, the Red Sox got off to a great start that year. I think they went fifteen and six. Uh, they played the Yankees six games early in the year. They won five of them. It, it was a statement to start the year. And then they just kind of went to sleep. And they were never really in threat of losing the wild card spot. But the division started to get away from them. And, uh, and you know, Nomar became a negative. I mean, there was a, a Nomar Garcia became a big problem. At the end of July, he didn't play in a game at Yankee Stadium. You guys remember the moment Jeter went into the seats and smashed up his face. Nomar sat on the bench. After the game, I remember Kurt Schilling uh, sitting at a, a table in the middle of the clubhouse where all the players would play cards and dine and whatever. And uh, Schilling said it loud enough so that everyone heard it. And it wasn't a quote, wasn't part of an interview, but he sort of pointed to his hand uh, as if to like say, you know, where you'd have your championship rings. And he held it up and he said, that's why that guy has four of those big fucking things right here, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning the championship rings. Mm-hmm. And it was a message to, you know, I think it was a message to Nomar about, you know, you got to fight your way into that game, pal. We got swept and now we're in big trouble. Uh, so I think the real big thing, a lot of people put emphasis on the fight. Uh, after the fight, I think they went eight and six over 14 games. They, they lapsed right back into what they were. Um, the big thing was the trade deadline. You know, Theo shook up the team. He traded Garcia Parra. They got Minkiewicz. They got Cabrera. It took about two weeks for the trade to kind of take hold. And then from August 15th to the, through the playoffs, they went 45 and 15. So, you know, I think it was 34 and 12 over the regular season. Uh, I mean, the, the, the final six weeks of the regular season and the postseason is the best baseball I've ever seen the Red Sox play. Uh, and I don't care what anybody tells me uh, about, you know, 07 when they went wire to wire or 2018 when they won 108 games. If any of those, if all those teams played at their peak, the 04 Red Sox would beat them all. 
And that was uh, what they were at the end of that year was an absolute buzzsaw. They were a machine. So if we had talked to you when they were down 3-0, would you have been surprised by that result? Or would you would you have been down on them at all? <laughs> oh, I was way down on them at 3-0. <laughs> yeah. 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 And again, I had something invested because, you know, I, as I said, I Harper and I were writing the book. Yeah. And so Harper was in the stadium that night when it happened. And I, I think he was sitting in the back of the press box. You know, the home writers always get the, the roads in front. And uh, I remember walking out of the ballpark saying to myself, after all that, after Grady Little, after Terry Francona, after Folk and Schilling and the whole A-Rod debacle, after trading Nomar, after the brawl, they're going to get fucking swept. They're going to get swept. I mean, that's what I thought. Like, you've got to be kidding me. This is how it ends. And, uh, you know, then they started putting up a little bit of a fight. And, you know, the next thing you know, there's a duck bowl parade with, you know, you know, depending on what you believe, two or three million people. Yeah. Uh, it turned fast. Really Sorry. fast. So when it was down three, I don't know if you're a gambler, if you're even permitted to, like, what odds would you have needed to bet on the Red Sox to, to win that series? Oh, gosh. I mean, uh, 100 to one. You know, you'd have to say it again. 100 to one. Would you have bet the Red Sox? Oh, not enough. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> not enough. I mean, I would say it was like a million to one. Uh, -huh. uh, you know, again, it had never happened in the history of baseball in any series of any consequence. No one had ever been down three. Yeah. Oh, come back to win, let alone against the preeminent franchise, maybe in all of professional sports that had been winning titles. Although, you know, certainly they had lost in 03, they had lost in 01, but they still had their nucleus that had won four titles in the you know, late nineties. Uh, and um, let's not forget it. The night of game three, it was 19 to eight. You, you walked out of the ballpark and the Red Sox get their brains beat in. Schilling was hurt. Like it just, it was bleak. It just like you, you put zero, you would say there's no ambent in that. It's just not, they got to win four in a row. They got to do it without Schilling. They just lost 19 to eight. They're a mess. It's over. I was going to ask you what your mindset was at three, three, like how nervous were you versus how excited were you for, for your book with John? I mean, your, your book suddenly took on additional significance. Like how are you balancing all those emotions? Well, so honestly, you know, I, I tried not to put too much on the book. It was more the, you know, again, I grew up here. So part of me wanted to see yeah. the Red Sox win it. And at the very least, I wanted to see a fight. I, and I can tell you, you know, I, I remember sort of my thought process uh, as we went through every of the remaining games. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something I've talked about a lot, written about a lot over the years. But I, I, I remember it. I remember feeling, as I told you, walking out of there going, I can't believe this is going to end in a sweep. Then they won the next night to make it three to one. And, uh, you know, the game ended with the Ortiz homer against Paul Quantrill in that game. That was game four. And there were no more off days, which is something that I don't think we gave enough um, attention to because there was a rain out in there that meant the final four games of the series, if they were going to be played, had to be played in succession. So that was going to tax pitching staffs on both sides, you know, the Yankees included. But in any case, I remember walking out of there going, okay, fine. It's three, one big deal. They won one game. Like all that does is right. uh, get them a stay of execution. That's it. It was game, game four was not any type of momentum shift as much as the Dave Roberts thing happened and everything else. 
It gave the Red Sox a reprieve is what it did. That's all it did. Game five was the big one in my mind. And I remember thinking, well, if they win this one, now they got to go back to New York. And not only do they go back to New York, but the Yankees then have to take the field for game six, knowing we got to win tonight. Yeah. Because yeah. if we lose, now it's game seven, and who yeah. the hell wants game seven? Right. Okay? So now, then it would be even. So I, I thought there was there was pressure starting to build on the Yankees a little bit in game five, but really the big one was game six. So so then we go to New York for game six, and that was Schilling's going to try to pitch. Let's see what happens. You know, they sewed up his ankle to keep his uh, tendon in place so it wasn't snapping around in his, in his ankle. And in the first, uh, uh, first inning, Schilling went one, two, three. And he walked off the mound, and I remember thinking, oh, we're in business. You know, then that one ends, and now it's okay. Well, here we go. Like, this is it. And uh, prior to Game 7, standing in the hallway, you know, underneath the concourses at Yankee Stadium, I remember, I think it was Charles Steinberg who worked for Larry Lucchino at the time with the Red Sox. And he said, you know, we were all thinking back to the game a year earlier when the Red Sox had a 5-2 lead in the eighth inning, and they couldn't hold it. And uh, and I had the same thought Charles did, but he verbalized it, you know, and he said, if we're going to win this game, we got to get a big lead and hold on. We, you know, the, the final outs at Yankee Stadium are just way too hard. And, yep. uh, and, and I still believe the hardest outs in baseball are the seventh, eighth and ninth innings in New York uh, in October. That place is just different. It's different. Yeah. It's like the Coliseum, you know. It, it well, does. I mean, I- especially knowing that for the better part of two decades, you weren't going to score in those innings. Right. So you, 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 you better hold them because you, you were, they, they were shut down at least for the last six outs of a game. Correct. Well, but Johnny Damon got thrown out at the plate uh, in mm-hmm. the first inning and it took the air out of the Red Sox or so we thought. And it was, Oh my gosh, here you go. You're going to get a lead in the first inning. Damon gets thrown out. Yankees are going to get out of it. You know, because everybody's tensions were really high because of, you know, the way the two years had gone and the way the Red Sox history was. And David Ortiz stepped into the batter's box and on the first pitch hit a two-run homer into the right field seats and everybody forgot that Damon got thrown out. So, yeah. and, and by the way, another player you haven't mentioned who had a really pretty solid series was Nomar's replacement. Cabrera had a, Cabrera had a real workmanlike, productive series for the team. Yeah, and he was a, offensively he was a, and defensively. He was a good teammate uh, in a lot of you know. In a lot of ways, they won just by getting rid of Nomar. And when I say that, yeah. I always got along with Nomar, you know. But his attitude was so sour that year that it really was, in some ways, weighing them down. They just get tired of hearing him. And so once they got rid of him, there was a real uh, sort of like, okay, we've been freed. You know, now we're going to yeah. go play. And yeah. Cabrera was, he was good. Um, you know, as was Minkiewicz. I mean, he did, those guys did exactly what Thea wanted them to do. They played steady defense. Uh, so they eliminated mistakes. But once the, you know, once they got that lead early in game seven, then they just started rolling. Damon hit a grand slam. Now we're six to nothing. You know, by the time it got to 10 to three, Pedro came in. The crowd got like I, remember, I had arguments with this about Dan Shaughnessy or debates. But he said, why would you bring Pedro in? You know, it's 10 to 3, you get the crowd. I'm like, Dan, it was 10 to 3. Right. Like, they're not <laughs> going to give up 8 to lose to the Yankees. They're, they're better than yeah. that. You know, they might have done that 
20 years earlier, but not, not that year, not that team. And, um, you know, they steamrolled them in game seven. They absolutely obliterated them and, and the Cardinals were no match for them in the world series. I mean, that was a complete mismatch. No. And, um, the rest, as they say is history. I, not that I've thought about it, but just so you know, Tony, I was getting $8,000 from ESPN every four weeks for my commercial. (laughs) If that commercial ran for 86 more years, I think with compound interest, I think I have, I think I would have made somewhere between 80 and $90 million, but not that I thought it, not that I thought about it at all. (laughs) Oh, wow. You got screwed big time. So you grew up in Boston, you get a dream job of being involved in sports and you see something that defies all reason, which is the Red Sox being down three, nothing. You wouldn't bet it a million to one. And they come back against their most hated rival to win an improbable series, win the World Series, break a curse. Is there any part of you after they win the World Series that's sad that you're never going to see something like that again, that there's almost no where for the Red Sox to go after that? Like, it's so heroic, so irrational in a certain way that this happens, so perfect that that's kind of the pinnacle of baseball for you? Yeah, I mean, 100%, absolutely. I, again, I remember having the thought. And, and and it didn't happen, like, right away, you know? So I remember standing in the press box in St. Louis when they were celebrating on the field and looking down at it going, wow, there it is. You know, this is mm-hmm. what every uh, Bostonian and New Englander has been waiting for for a lifetime, uh, the large majority of people anyway, that because there were just so few people around that had any recollection whatsoever of 1918. So uh, that moment was sort of like, you know, the, the image is still stuck in my head of, you know, the lights had been turned down a little bit. The players had all congregated on the infield. It was almost like, it was almost like theater lighting is what it felt like. Like you were sitting in a, uh, you know, in a theater on Broadway, watching some sort of a performance that had uh, all the trimmings of stage lighting and everything else. It was kind of cool. And, uh, but I remember after that, like after the parade, the whole thing, because I had zero interest in going to the parade. We were all exhausted. I remember thinking, I may never cover anything more important in my life again. Like, yeah, I got to get off of baseball. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now, look, I stayed on baseball for you know a little longer, but I started doing general columns. Really, um, you know, the, the Herald, Boston Herald, at that time made me a general columnist, and so I started branching out because I just thought this will never be topped. It just won't. Um, it almost and can't. I, it can't. No, like, right, it's, that's right. It's, it's too perfect. I mean, if that series is against another franchise, maybe you can keep going. If they just win it like a normal six-game series, four to two. But there's something almost like designed about this to happen. Yeah, it like, was it was storybook. Yeah, it, 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 it was the way it happened. You would never script because you're like, that's too much. Yeah. Just not, not going to happen that way. Yeah. So, Tony... You've spent the better part of the last, you know, 15, 20 years, getting close to 20 now, thinking about the season. Yep. You wrote a book. You've had, you've had plenty of time to reflect on it. I'm just going to ask you one last time for the record. Sure. Do you have any insight into what the meaning of Manny's cutoff was? <laughs> or, no. or is it just one of, the, it's one of those unknowable things? Yeah, it's, no, it's, they, it's, a, it's an unsolved mystery is the way yeah. that I would I categorize <laughs> I it. it. Look, I, I wish I had a good answer for you. No. But I, I, and, I, and I'll tell you yes. this. If you asked Manny 
what he was thinking, he, he wouldn't be, be able to explain it to you. Either would, Jackson, either would Jackson Pollock if you asked him after he painted a picture. It just is. It just is. I, right, so, there's, right. There's a certain artistry there that none of us appreciates. Maybe there's I, I, a really I actually, there. So I see connective tissue between the Manny catch and the Red Sox coming back from 3-0. It's just it doesn't totally make sense, but it added up to something that was almost like – sublime in baseball that you're never going to see again. It just like shouldn't happen. And it's amazing. And it's like hard to dissect why it happened. Tony, this was great. This was uh, a walk down memory lane. Uh, we, we, we brought the expert in and even he could not crack the code of Manny's cutoff. Uh, Tony, thank you so much. And, and for those of you that want to uh, hear more of Tony, you can listen to him on 98.5. On Felger and Mazzy also has got a podcast and his books, including the one about the 2004 ALCS, are all available on Amazon or the bookseller of your choice. Tony, seriously, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. Guys, listen, thanks a lot. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I you know, whenever people ask me about that time in baseball, I, I never get sick of talking about it because it's just it was such a uh, extraordinary couple of years. Really, it was amazing, amazing stuff. Yeah, it came through. It definitely came through. Wow, Kevin, I feel I I feel like we just got we just exa- I feel like we just exhausted everything about the Red Sox season and we got like a we got like a masterclass lecture from from Tony Maserati. Do you, I mean, outside of the fact that the the most opaque event in the history of baseball is still opaque, I feel like we got everything oh, else. Oh, for right? sure. I, but I think the fact that it's inscrutable even to Tony supports our thesis in how bizarre the event was um when yeah. it's inscrutable um to the experts it suggests that there's something going on that has deeper cultural meaning than just that play yeah to use another boston example i feel like the manny play is like will hunting at the bulletin board doing like like a 750 step proof <laughs> yeah. And then at the end of the proof, he just puts a line through the equal sign and says, it, no, I was wrong. Like, it right. doesn't add up. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, it's no. Or if, <laughs> you, you know, Paul Revere, instead of saying that the British were coming, you know, shouted out J-Lo lyrics. It's just complete, completely <laughs> bizarre nonsense that that it's hard right. to process. Right, right. Okay. So beyond the, the Esperanto of Manny and the, and, the, and the Red Sox, that wasn't all that happened that year. And, and we began to tease this out a little bit with Tony, but I just want to recount some other things. As you know, I'm like a, I'm the, the nerdiest of stats nerds. So that same season, three other thing happened, three other things happened statistically that I wanted to talk about. Number one, Roger Clemens wins his seventh Cy Young at the age of 42. He goes 18 and four, has a sub three ERA. Um, Now, I think it's, you know, logically you can attribute that to perhaps performance enhancement. Clemens is, I think, almost inarguably the greatest pitcher of, of our lifetime. But still, really weird. Before Clemens, the the oldest Cy Young winner was was Gaylord Perry at forty, and he did it by right, cheating. Right. Also, okay, yeah, as you well know. Um, the second record is not an old guy record, but it's an old record. Ichiro Suzuki has two hundred and sixty two hits. 
Now, just to, I, I, just to put that in context, that was a record that I thought was more unbreakable than certainly than 60 home runs when I was growing up. I, I thought it was maybe more unbreakable than DiMaggio's hit streak. It was it was set in, the I think, 1920 by George Sisler, who had 257 hits. And the closest anyone had ever gotten in my lifetime was Wade Bobbs, who had 240. So like each Ichiro having 262 hits was like putting putting a human being on on right. Venus. Like it made, right. it made yeah. no sense. Yeah. And it's crazy that it's like a, it's like a sub note in this season. I mean, no, I, it, it was like the 32nd okay. thing I thought about when, when we were looking back at 04. Okay. So here's the biggest one that I, I think has gotten forgotten because of all of the other, uh, all the other texts about Barry Bonds and the 73 home run season. But in 2004, Barry Bonds, like objectively had the best offensive season in the history of right. baseball <laughs> at the age of right. 40. So he started the season at 39. He turns 40. And let me just like walk you through this. Okay. 609 on base percentage. He right. got on base right. 60% yeah. right. of the time. Okay. His OPS was 1.422, which I think is the highest all time by like 150 basis points. He walked 232 times. I think 100 of them were intentional. Hits 45 home runs and only strikes out 41 times. Okay. Like, so if you don't uh, know about baseball, right? If these numbers don't mean anything, you know, part of the reason I like baseball for kids is that it teaches about failure. Like, you tell people, Mm -hmm. like, look, if you can do okay one third of the time, you're a Hall of Famer, right? Yes. What Maddie is just telling us is that that's not true when it comes to Barry Bonds, right? Uh, because he was more he was more successful than he failed. So it's the reverse lesson if you use Barry, Barry Bonds, which is that when you get up at bat, we expect you to get on base more than you don't. Yes. Right. And if Barry Bonds did this when he was 29, it would be irrational. Right. Like him doing it at 40, like it's not generational. This is like a millennial event. Like this is an event that I, like you're you're a gambler, Kevin. What would what odds would you have to take for this to happen again in the next 1000 years? Oh, never. It wouldn't be on the board. Nobody would take the other side of it. Right. Yeah, right. It's just not going to happen. So why don't we try to put it in context of other great old man athletic events? The most famous one is at the age of 39, Ted Williams hit 388 and had a 1.257 OPS. Like, like I remember hearing that story and just uh, it made no sense to me. It, he didn't play the full season. But I again, I just thought that like it, don't even it's not it'll never be topped. Right. Yeah, the the thing about when you talk about baseball statistics from that era, the irrationalities seem lovely to me because mm-hmm. of their cultural context. Like Ted Williams doing great things is like an extension of the fact that he also stopped playing baseball to serve in the arm in the army, right? Um, right. Twice. Uh, Barry Bonds doing it just suggests that the world doesn't work anymore, <laughs> right? Like right, one's right. an extension of heroism, the other's an extension of just intrinsic irrationality. That everything you thought to be true about like buildings blowing up or anything like that, like don't expect anything that you thought to happen to be true because this is what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, it's it's like if Walter White from Breaking Bad become became 
president of the United States at the end yeah, of the series. Yeah, or Surgeon General. Right, right. yeah. Or, <laughs> or like, right, general, yeah. right. Right, it's right. like, okay, fine. Or maybe like Donald Trump becoming president. I don't know, but it's just kind of right, like, right. Yeah, um, yeah. So I was looking for other old man uh, statistical anomalies, like sports greatness in old age. In baseball, the the closest thing I could find was Satchel Paige, after he retired from the major league, spent three seasons at AAA, like at an elite level of professional baseball, and at 48, 49, and 50 was the best starting pitcher in that league, uh-huh. which is like, like one of the seasons had a sub-2 ERA. Why didn't he get called up? I, I don't know. I, I have <laughs> right. no idea. That's that a great a, question. Maybe that. Maybe if we extend recent memories back to that year, we could talk about right. the irrationality of that. <laughs> right. 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 So that's a great question. We need to answer <laughs> that. But here's a non-baseball um, comparison that I want to make, and I want you to uh, help me unpack which is a more irrational event: Barry Bonds' 2004 season, or the great Thornton Mellon's <laughs> famous dive, the Triple Lindy. Yeah. Now. For those that don't remember the Triple Lindy, Thornton Mellon is played by Rodney Dangerfield in a uh, movie called Back to School from the 1980s. And he, in in old age, mounts a, a diving board where they have to add a supplemental diving board. So there's three diving boards, a high, middle, and low. He... Um, to check the wind and to make sure he's ready, he does some chicken farts under his arm. Yeah, they're very helpful. To calibrate and then, himself. And then, right. <laughs> and then test the wind direction by licking his thumb and sticking it in the air. And then does, by my count, seven flips across three boards, as well as like one really quite beautiful, I don't even know what to call it, like flamingo chunk. <laughs> and then a swan dive into a perfect landing. And wins the you know wins the the diving meet for the team, having replaced Chaz Osborne who pulled up lame with a cramp. Uh, the movie ends heroically. Yeah, I don't Object- think it's close actually, Matt. Okay. Because I, I think Barry Bonds is more irrational, and this is why I think that's the case. When people are watching Thornton Mellon, they're amazed, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody knows who the Triple Indy is in this universe, and everybody yes. is ecstatic that he pulls it off but there's no um skepticism as to the event it's seen as just wonderful athleticism and it's amazing that he pulled it off when barry bonds is doing it everybody kind of recognizes this game is broken so i think that the fact that thornton mellon achieves that again has rationality in the back to school world where everybody contemporaneous to Barry Bonds knows there's something off. Thornton Mellon's in the in the diving hall of fame where Barry Bonds is not. Right. And also it's worth mentioning that Thornton Mellon did execute the same dive apparently in his youth in the 1940s. So there was right. precedent. Yeah, oh, 100%. And everybody's excited to see it. The movie ends in in if you were to take that event and put it into baseball, um people would have applauded and not said, what just happened? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Where in Barry Bonds, people were saying like, okay, like we need to do something. Like we need to start testing people because there's something really wrong. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So it's not, you, we couldn't even rationally call Bonds' season like the octuplet Lindy. It needs like a new name. He would have to jump into space and not come down. (laughs) 
right? right. That's the equivalent right. of just fly. <laughs> right. Okay. So, Kevin, we did not, much to our chagrin, we did not solve the Manny cutoff. Well, okay? maybe that's the answer, Matt, that it's not solvable. That what we're learning about 2004 is that the scientific method doesn't apply, that cultural events had to be irrational, like Howard Dean's scream, in order to get attention. Um, And that this is the world um, that's about to take shape. Um, That the old world of, of George Brett's shitting in the Bellagio that we can make sense of that's gone. That's <laughs> right. That's gone. And now it's a world that is, it, it's ineffable. We don't have answers for it. Right. Right. Okay. Um, another thing that we, another mystery we have not solved is the mystery of my TV commercial. So here's a postscript for everyone. About three or four years ago, my commercial was available on an obscure Chinese TV ad nostalgia website. And occasionally I would pull out and stream the ad for my children who got a kick out of it. That ad, to the best of our knowledge, and we have searched every corner of the internet, is no longer available. It it's can, gone. There is no it's record. It's, there's no record. It's gone. I feel confident... As I've said to you, you can't disprove a negative, but I feel pretty confident in my internet skills and it's, it's not available for consumption. Okay. So what does that mean? Again, that shouldn't occur. It's a nationally airing ad on ESPN and we can find other ads contemporaneous to your ad. It suggests maybe bizarrely that the universe is punishing you. I don't know what... Uh, or yeah. or okay so or is it protecting me and here's mm-hmm. here's my if too many people saw that is is it logical to think that i caused baseball's malfunction and that a generation of yankees fans and bonds haters would conspire against me because i dared the universe to allow the Red Sox to win? Like, is it protecting me? It could be. It could be. But we know, I think we can plant a flag on your commercial as the last moment of statistical rationality in baseball. (laughs) That's the final moment. And once that, once its cultural significance was erased, maybe the ad, almost like in a back to future type of way, had to disappear. Like it no longer exists. Like that premise can no longer be tenable and the commercial has to fade into the ether. Yes. Yes. I I was the Fauci and the universe was the Trump administration. Right. Like yeah, I, it was gone. You were you were you were canceled. You were canceled. Yeah. Okay. Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> um thanks, Kevin, for a great episode. Yeah, thanks, Matt. And thank you to our listeners for joining. As always, if you'd like to subscribe or follow Recent Memories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast provider of your choice. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.